Subscribe to The Spectator in our flash sale until Monday only, and you'll not only get your first 12 weeks in print and online for £12, but you'll also get a bottle of Johnny Walker Black Label Whiskey absolutely free. To claim this offer, go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash whiskey. This offer is only available within the UK and you must be 18 or older to claim it. Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator. This week I'm joined by the art critic and historian Jonathan Jones, whose new book is a sumptuously illustrated and highly scholarly Earthly Delights, A History of the Renaissance. Now, Jonathan, you say in your introduction that, you know, scholars don't like to talk about the Renaissance anymore. And it feels like in some ways this is a a bit of rehabilitation of the term. You say what gives the value of of the Renaissance as an idea? Well, I think without the Renaissance, there's a huge hole, not just in the story of art, but in, in European history and the whole our understanding of Europe. I mean, I did history at university and I did a thing called early modern history. That's what you do. You do early modern history. Now, I was already at that age fascinated by this other thing called the Renaissance, which I understood in a fairly naive way as a wonderful flowering of art and life, I suppose, in which people escaped from the gloom and doom of the Middle Ages into a new sunny spring Botticelli's Primavera. I've been to Florence. That's where I got all these ideas from. And this book really is trying to validate that same possibly, you know, old-fashioned Victorian idea of the Renaissance as as a great liberating cultural moment. And I think it did happen. That did happen. And it was, as I call it, um, a discovery of earthly delights. Uh, The Swiss 19th century historian Jacob Burkhardt, who more or less invented the Renaissance, the Italian Renaissance. He wrote a book called The Civilization of the Renaissance in Italy. And he talks about the discovery of the world and of man. That's how he puts it, which obviously we would now say humanity rather than man. But that is kind of going on in the Renaissance. That is real. It's it's, it's there in, in the art. And I come through it through the art. I come to it through the art. Art is my primary source. But then I the book explores a lot more than art. It, it sets the art within a very broad historical context of everything from um, politics to discovery, navigation, mapping. And the world was opening up and reconnecting in new ways. It's like the wires were being changed on a circuit board and suddenly there were new routes across the sea, starting with the Portuguese mapping, charting and exploring the coast of Africa and starting to trade with African kingdoms and then the Spanish following them. And then 1492, Christopher Columbus makes it across the Atlantic, doesn't know what he's done, thinks he's found a route to China. That's what he was looking for. And he's determined to the end of his days that this is what he's found, even though the evidence is mounting that he has discovered a completely different continent. And then the Florentine explorer, Amerigo Vespucci, who follows in his footsteps and is a slightly sort of dodgy character a bit of a you know who who fakes a couple of his at least one of his voyages that he wrote about his fake but he recognized that it was a new world novus mundus and that's why it's named after him america yeah so so all of that is going on and the renaissance helps to create those changes and also reflects those changes and 
I wanted to reclaim it. I wanted to rediscover it as a, I try in this book to to show why, as I say, there'd be a blank hole, there'd be a big hole in history if you didn't have the Renaissance as a concept. But you don't sort of automatically, you know, like take an off-the-shelf version of the Renaissance. And one of the things that's really interesting in this book, you mentioned Burkhardt and this idea of the Italian Renaissance. The Renaissance wasn't as Italian as I guess most of us think. And one of the really interesting things you talk about is the way that actually some of these vital things, I mean, I hadn't known that the Pietà, for instance, was actually not an, an Italian Catholic invention. They're coming down from from the Low Countries or coming down from, from the northern part of Europe, is that right? That's right, yeah. I mean, in fact, I think that was Burkhardt's big mistake. He, his book was The Civilization of the Renaissance in Italy. He was Swiss. He lived in Basel. And it's actually quite strange because one of the greatest Northern European Renaissance artists is Holbein, who was based for a lot of his life in Basel. And Holbein's incredible painting, The Dead Christ, is still in Basel. And it was there in the 19th century. And it's strange because when Burkhardt was on holiday in Italy... Dostoevsky, the Russian novelist, went to Basel on his honeymoon, saw Holbein's Dead Christ. Yeah, and not a has, honeymoonish sort of picture. He was stunned at. by it, you know, terrified by it. Um, it challenged his faith because the Dead Christ is an incredibly bleak, factual painting of a corpse. There's nothing about it. I mean, it's Christ. It's got, you know, the, the nail holes. But there's nothing to show that he's going to be redeemed, re- re- resurrected. It's utterly terrifying. And Dostoevsky has... Prince Mishkin and the idiot say you could lose your faith looking at that picture. Um, it's you know so the Northern Renaissance is full of actually really radical and disturbing images like whether it's Holbein's Dead Christ, the fantastical works of Hieronymus Bosch, which are central to this book. The book, the book's title, um, it Earthly Delights, is refers to Bosch's painting, The Garden of Earthly Delights, The Garden of Earthly Delights, which being this phantasmagoric triptych three-part painting which says you know the garden of eden on one side hell in the other and in the middle there's this earthly paradise where people are having a huge orgy there's just almost innumerable naked men and women black and white as a contemporary observer put it um so it's a multiracial orgy um, and what what's going on what the heck's going on here Uh, and interpreting that painting is actually a sort of central pivot of the book in a way. And one of the points you make in that is that, that this earthly part of the triptych, I think you say it doesn't have, you know, monks and nuns in it, which ordinary Bosch things yeah. do. What do you deduce yeah. from that? Yeah, but I mean Bosch Bosch lived in Den Bosch in the Netherlands, as we call it today. And he was a respectable pillar of the community by all accounts. You know, the sources such that they are, seem to show that he was very much part of the Christian elite, actually, in the town. But his art is full of, obviously, full of very, very personal, perhaps, well, they're heretical ideas. I think they are heretical. And monks and nuns, he's always, the thing about the monks and nuns is that he has a lot of anti-clericalism in his art, even though he's supposed to be this respectable Christian. He's always mocking the monks and nuns. But no, they're not in the central panel of the Garden of Earthly Delights. Also, he usually depicts... um, His art works. His art, you know, he creates fantastical monsters, but he does that by mixing together real things from his world. Um, And this is... It's a very counterintuitive point you make about Bosch's naturalism. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, he's a brilliant naturalist. That's Well, obviously, that's why I include him as a Renaissance artist. He's not a weird medieval figure who's outside the mainstream of European culture. He uses perspective brilliantly, which is 
is the great Renaissance invention that's shared in North and South, which is, you know, the invention, the discovery of perspective and how to show things in depth is a central phenomenon. And that's so, not just a geometric, sorry, just as a side note, because it's such so important in the way you set up the book. Perspective, as you understand it, isn't just a kind of, if you like, geometric trick. No. It has a real resonance. And what, what is that resonance? What's the importance of it? Well, for a start, it just enables people to experience the world in a far clearer, more rational way, because what they believe its perspective to be, well, Alberti defines it as the, the, the flat picture surface, which in the early Renaissance is a piece of wood, they're painting on wood. That flat surface is, becomes a window, and you're looking through a window onto a three-dimensional world. So whether it's Bosch, who does it really well, or Leonardo da Vinci... Jan van Eyck, all these kind of masters of perspective, they create illusory, three-dimensional, deep space beyond the, the flat surface. And it's a way of, it's clearly a way of grasping the world. I mean, literally grasping it and wanting to be able to. I want to see the fruit on that windowsill in Jan van Eyck's Arnold Feeney portrait. I'm going to make it round, it's going to be round and it's going to have the light on it. It's, it's real fruit and, you know, as if you could touch it, as if you could eat it. It is a new very new. But also, I mean, that spatial thing probably is connected to, to mapping as well. If you can conceive of three-dimensional space in, in, in that rational, scientific way, they see it as scientific. They see perspective as science, especially in Florence. In the north, they just do it. Jan van Eyck just does it. Whereas in Florence, they spend generations carefully working out the mathematics and the geometry, and it's more abstract but that leads to Leonardo da Vinci's science. But, I mean, Leonardo does connect it to map making. He was a brilliant map maker, and he's inspired by the discovery of the new world, I think, to get very interested in map making and what topography is. And then he's also... And so, which sorry, just brings us briefly back to what you were saying about Bosch before I interrupted you, that that central panel of the triptych. Yeah. So just as Leonardo da Vinci starts making maps after 1492... Just about the only clear fact about the Garden of Earthly Delights, which is an astonishing, mysterious painting. It was definitely painted after Columbus discovered the New World. It's painted in the years when reports are coming through and news is coming through. Obviously very distorted, very fantastical, a lot of um, pirated books about Vespucci's travels, which have woodcuts of the naked people's that's what they call them, the new degenti of the new world. Um, so they're portrayed as these these naked savages. They may be as noble savages. And that's clearly what Bosch is doing in the Garden of Earthly Delights, I think. Because it this is why there are no modern things. There are no pre there's none of these monks and nuns. They're in the hell panel instead of the Garden of Earthly Delights. The ice skates, the ice skating birds, the windmills, which usually appear in weirdly distorted ways in Bosch's paintings. None of those are in the central panel of the Garden of Earthly Delights. Instead, there are, there's red coral, there's what may be the waters of paradise, and the people are being fed by giant fruits. They've got giant strawberries, so God is just giving them these, you know, natural bounty. So they're, they're eating giant strawberries and they're cavorting naked with no sense of sin, this is his idea of what might be happening in the new world. <laughs> yeah, is... I'm just saying what, what your reading of that is in his millenarian scheme, because you also talk extensively, fascinatingly, about another of his paintings, the ha this Haywain, 
yeah. where it's a triptych where you've got you know heaven on the left or the creation on the left and the or God of Eden or something on the left and you've got hell on the right and everyone's kind of tumbling in the central panel they're very much in our world and they're moving inexorably towards hell you know it's not a very balanced piece it's like we're all doomed exactly. and yet the Garden of Earthly Lights obviously something very different going on there what what yeah. do you think that represents it seems to be an aspect of religion which recurs i think in you see this in in heretical movements i think in the west where people become at some point extreme christianity slips over into its opposite into antinomianism and you stop believing in sin with bosch bosch has obviously has an acute sense of sin and he doesn't believe in the nostrums of the late medieval church he does not believe that if you say all your our fathers and you do good works and all the things that the church says. He does not believe that's going to save you. The Haywain suggests that everybody is bound for hell. And this is before Martin Luther. This is before the Reformation. So he really there is just you know, absolutely in despair. But then in the Garden of Earthly Delights, he seems to posit a different theology. What if God didn't define sexuality as sin? What if God wasn't this great judge of our pleasures and our delights? And that's actually in the, the left-hand panel, which is the Garden of Eden panel. So the Haywain and the Garden of Earthly Lights, it's almost, yeah, they, they go together. They're both, one is this absolute despair, like absolute despair where it shows the Garden of Eden, the fall, Adam and Eve are cast out, and then we're all following this Haywain to hell. Yeah, it's literally hell in a handcart. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really is. And I call the chapter Haywain to hell, which uh. I was quite proud of. <laughs> the ACDC reference. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> quite right, too. Um, uh. but, so... And then in the Garden of Earthly Lights, the opposite of theology is posed, well, what if we're not damned at all or not everyone is damned? Because the Garden of Eden in the Earthly Delights painting is teeming with different species as giraffes, as elephants. So it's so even the Garden of Eden, it's a, it's a global Garden of Eden. It's this, you know, the whole world and all, all the species of, of Africa and the New World are all encompassed in the Garden of Eden. And then the story in the Garden of Eden ends not with the fall, but with God introducing Eve to Adam. So God is introducing Eve and Adam and he's blessing and it's it seems to be just innocent. He's just sort of saying, hail married love, hail, you know, hail love. So there is no fall. There's no depiction of the fall. I mean I mean this painting ended up if you go and see it, so it's in the Prado in Madrid. And it ended up in Spain because the Spanish ruled the Netherlands and Philip II ended up owning it. And he put it in the Escorial, which is, you know, this kind of incredibly terrifying, bleak monastery palace that he built outside Madrid. It's so obviously the monks in the Escorial, after his death, thought they had to explain it. And they said, well, there's no way that, you know, Philip II, this pious king who sent the Spanish Armada, there's no way that he was enjoying this lewd scene. Clearly, it's a moral condemnation of sin. And it's a it's an illusory garden of earthly delights. And, you know, really, they're all going to go to hell. And weirdly enough, that's still the orthodox art historical interpretation of the painting. It's always been famous. It's always been fascinated people. And it has in the past sometimes been seen as a heretical painting. But today's fashion in art history seems to me to be very, very conservative, where they see it as being condemnation of sin but really there's too much detail if Bosch was just trying to condemn these sins it, he really doesn't do it very well because he obviously makes it funny and delightful and well, there is, I mean, you know. a wider theme of this book seems to be that not being quite of the devil's part but not knowing it but that there's a tension in so many of these artists between 
their ostensibly or even lip service Christian yeah. orthodoxy and a kind of real just artistic voluptuous delight in yeah the sublunary uh, world and the I, I flesh. think yeah I mean I think I think the moment that they started to be able to paint the world with the new conviction that, that perspective gave them and oil paints that they're able to one of the first things they do is to paint the body the human body comes in it's one of the, the most fascinating thing of all you know yes I mean they do portraiture but in the first chapter, I talk about Jan van Eyck. Jan van Eyck's Arnold Feeney portrait, you could say it's the, by my definition, it's the, the first Renaissance painting, 1434, the first day of the Renaissance is when this couple pose in their Bruges apartment to be painted by van Eyck. But he also does a nude version of it. It's set it's in the, the same, same room, twin. We haven't got that, house. have we? Still. It's a lost work of art, but it's known through a couple of copies. And then you can compare it with his other... His surviving nudes are Adam and Eve, actually, on the Ghent altarpiece, and they're pretty, they're incredible, incredibly uh, sensual depictions. But basically, so Jan van Eyck, right at the beginning, and he was famous in his lifetime for painting nudes. So, yeah, you put it very well. I think it's an explosion of voluptuousness, partly made possible by the technology of paint and of perspective. Which again and, comes from the north, you said. Again, it fascinates me that it, they were all painting with tempera down there until... yeah. Suddenly, you know, people came back from the Low Countries and went, "Look, this oil stuff." Yeah, so roughly- yeah, yeah. Oils, it, it's exactly in Florence. They're still working in tempera as they work out the science of perspective, and it's only when you get really to Leonardo that that they start truly em- embracing oil paints. And then at the beginning, well, the, the late fifteenth century, the Venetians take up oils and they combine it with canvas which creates another level of uh, sensuality, basically. So Giorgione and Titian. But obviously, this is not just technology, it's, it's ideas. In the North, for an artist like Bosch, or even Van Eyck, much earlier on, they are led to a kind of heresy. They seem to be exploring heresy. I mean, it's hard to put your finger on what exactly they're thinking. But if anything, it's heretical that they're thinking about sin and questioning the idea of sin in, in religious terms. In Italy, and what does make Italy different... They have this new language of pagan Greece and Rome. So they've got these classical figures. And is that primarily in your reading of it where the sudden attention to the body comes back? You know, they're just like, the ancients did nudes. It it seems to precede it. I mean, Van Eyck is already, he's painting female nudes, um, which are very popular, you know, in the very early 15th century. But as the, the classical... Revival, the humanism, as it's known, you know, the humanist scholars who are going resurrecting all these ancient texts, it just gives a different legitimacy because they're actually not only have they got the means to portray and to enjoy the physical world and the carnal world with abandon, but they find this philosophy from the ancient Greeks and Romans. And they get this. It's pagan. It's pre-Christian. It has no. It doesn't have that equation of sex and sin because Christianity is unique as a religion in the degree to which it uh, moralizes sexuality. And that um, seems to jostle. I mean, I, I think you talk about how when the Ottoman Turks are getting frisky, suddenly the Eastern and Western Christian churches coming to closer yeah, contact in the early fifteenth yeah. century, and that's where all these lovely Greek texts come through, and the Pope gets them translated but at least to start with the Pope's sort of saying well, we're going to have to 
you know, co-opt them. Yeah. Plato's going to be a Christian had he but known it or been so, born a bit later. Yeah, and, I, mean, and, I, mean, I mean, when, when I was sort of uh, growing up, when I was a student, trying to reconcile my love of Renaissance art with what art historians said about it, the dominant interpretation was that of the Warburg group, the Warburg historians. Um, the Warburg Institute is still a great centre of Renaissance learning. But, you know, historians like Panofsky, Gombrich, Warburg himself, all the fantastic um, researchers who were someone, I was discussing this the other day, I mean, obviously it's always explained, you know, they did put it, they put art history on a scientific basis for the first time, okay. But they did end up with a, a, a sort of theory that behind every Venus, every painting of Venus by Titian, there's Christian Neoplatonism. Christian Neoplatonism was evolved in 15th century Florence by one man, really, Marsilio Ficino, who was a brilliant scholar who was able to translate Greek. And he was commissioned by Cosimo de' Medici to translate the complete works of Plato, meaning translate them from Greek to Latin. Because Latin, a lot of people could read Latin, whereas Greek was very rare. So he did that, but he also interpreted them and he sort of tried to argue that Plato is reconcilable with Christianity. And it's become a sort of lazy, tired thing of that somehow all this, so all this paganism in the Renaissance of the Greek mythology being revived, Botticelli's Venus and Botticelli's Primavera, right through to Titian's incredibly lascivious nudes, that somehow all of this, this ancient mythology just, oh yes, it just gets reconciled with Christianity. It was much more tense than that. It was much more complicated than that. There was no question that the humanists, that there were all kinds of scandals. Um, one of the big fans of Plato was like Sigismondo Malatesta, the ruler of Rimini. And he was regarded as a complete kind of atheist monster. And the, and the Pope infernally canonised him, meaning that he was sentenced to go to hell to be a yes, prince I think you say hell. he's the only person in history who's Being achieved this canonized. Yeah, yeah, he is, yeah, apparently. And, that, and one of the things he did that was so terrible was he brought over the body of Plethon to be buried in in um, in his church in, in Rimini. And Plethon was the most influential. Of the, it, it, the Byzantine scholar, the Byzantines brought, who were really, you know, on their last legs and about to be overrun, by the Ottomans, so they bring over Plato, basically, and Plethon was the leading Byzantine intellect. But but Plethon was a pagan. He became a pagan. His kind of last work, which only survives in fragments, appears to be a pagan utopia where he's saying that, that the only way for Byzantium to get back its Greek strength and fight the Turks is to go back to paganism because because Christianity is making them weak. And that's a recurring idea in the Renaissance. It's shared by... Um, Nietzschean. Before, <laughs> very Nietzschean before very the letter, Nietzschean, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, and I was going to say Machiavelli, who is quite Nietzschean. I mean, Machiavelli talks about Christianity uh, in very cynical ways. I mean, first of all, he just talks about the Pope as a power broker, not not as a religious leader at all. And he, and he says very... Had a bit of a like point, this. didn't he? Yeah, he did, yeah. I mean, obviously, this is the era of the Borgias. And, of, you know, there's so... I mean, you don't have to believe all the gossip about the Borgias, but so they 10% did... 10% will do, yeah. You know, he was uh, Alexander Borgia Pope. He, you know, he had children. He had several children while he was a cardinal. And he not only that, but he uses the papacy to advance them. He makes Ches his son Cesare Borgia becomes head of the papal armies. Originally, Cesare was meant to be a cardinal, but 
his brother, who was meant to be the military leader, mysteriously got killed and thrown into the Tiber. And it's never been, you know... Funny how these things Everyone happen. at the time <laughs> believed that Cesare was behind <laughs> his death. Um, but, but Cesare then becomes head of the papal armies and is going around conquering central Italy with the help of Leonardo da Vinci as his military engineer. And that's... So, I mean, yeah, obviously a naked kind of... Is that, how how was that religious? No, I mean, was that, also, you know, I mean, that's it's kind of... Actually, maybe we'll come back to those very worldly popes um, because I think, the, you know, we'll have to talk about Julius a bit. But just to talk in this early Renaissance, you said, you know, oh, the popes might not have been all that religious. There's a lot of, you know, this Neoplatonism is kind of fig leaf thing. I mean, to the Botticelli, you say, has an Epicurean approach to matter. But Leonardo, who's one of the two or three most exciting figures in your book, as in, you know, as he was in the Renaissance. And you talk about him, quite gender-bending Christianity, and you say it's hard to categorise him as a Christian thinker. I mean, he's, you know, he's almost a sort of scientist in a lot of this. Yeah. I mean, how much of a heretic was Leonardo, do you think? Well, and how openly right. heretical was he? Well, Leonardo is the sort of test case, I think, because I think he shows how far outside the boundaries of Christendom you could actually think in the Renaissance. Leonardo, the first biography of Leonardo da Vinci appeared in 1550 in Giorgio Vasari's book, The Lives of the Artists. Vasari was the court artist in Florence and he published this, this incredible book, the first history of the Renaissance, published while the Renaissance is happening. And Vasari knows people, he knows Michelangelo, you know, um, his hero. Leonardo was dead, but he knew people who'd known Leonardo. So Vasari said in, in 1550 that Leonardo da Vinci, he was so heretical that he didn't believe any religion at all and preferred to be a philosopher than a Christian. In the next second edition of the book, 1568, he expunges that because obviously it was a massively dangerous thing to say. It was a counter-reformation underway by then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely well underway. And Vasari had met by that stage Leonardo's heir, uh, Francesco Melzi, who had all of Leonardo's notebooks and maybe he encouraged each sort of step. But I don't, you know, clearly they'd have been terrified that Leonardo's notebooks might be burned, you know, if, if it got out that he was just this rabid atheist. But, okay, I've read a lot of his notebooks and studied them, read them in facsimile, read the, you know, gone into them, I think, and I'd go into them in the book. I get, what I go into in particular depth in the book, I go... I go right through his science. I mean, yeah, I mean, Leonardo definitely saw himself as a scientist as much as an artist. He, you know, he wasn't university educated. His education was as, as, as an apprentice um, artist. But he, he obviously just has this you know, boundless curiosity and it's about science and engineering. I look in the book at his geology, which is just one example of, of how radical his thinking is. He was the first person to grasp what fossils are he understood that fossils are the remains of dead animals ancient animals but he also understands how they are placed in strata rock strata which he calls rock strata and he understands that strata are layers of rock that have been deposited over time and that as you go down not buying in the strata, flood either, is he? no he's he's totally scornful about the idea of the flood He's trying to understand. His question is, how do shells get on top of mountains? How can I go up in the Alps and I see seashells? And if you, you say they were put there by the flood, it's nonsense. Well, you'd have had to add the strata were laid down at different times, and so you'd have to have had a flood a year. I mean, you know, he's telescoping time a little bit there because it's millions of years. But 
he does have this sense that this is this is something happening over a long time and he says you know clearly these were living creatures that died and the sand covered them and then the sediments hardened in layers i mean he's just he you know and he and, he, and he, it, it's not they weren't put there by supernatural forces he says it's not magic you're an idiot if you think it was magic. he gets quite you know he goes he chews over this and gets quite angry that you'd have to be an idiot to believe magic or the supernatural put them there, which is what people thought. And the idea of the flood, of the deluge, no, it can't be that. And so he's dealing with the same questions there that, you know, that, that 19th century scientists locked horns over. I mean, I mean, he's anticipating when fossils and geology and, and the, the deep, deep time of geology, when that was understood in the late 18th, early 19th centuries, it would lead rapidly to Darwin's theory of evolution, you know. I mean, it was an and to the actual dethroning of, of Christianity in many ways. So I think, you know, I think Vasari had a point when he said that Leonardo was a godless, yeah. godless heretic. And there do seem to be a, a, one of the features of, the, of that's what seems to be this kind of, even though so many of these paintings are, and sculptures and so forth, are, you know, commissioned by the church, they're sort of religious in, in at least ostensible form, we don't find very many orthodox believers in your account of it. Well, one thing I think is that Renaissance artists are individuals. There's kind of, um, like with Leonardo da Vinci and the layers of stone, there are layerings of um, ways in which I've been, I've been looking at Renaissance art. And there's some, there's some, some things I almost take for granted now that, that I remember originally having to argue for. I take it pretty much for granted that Renaissance artists were, they were valued as geniuses right from quite early on. Cosmo de' Medici in the early 15th century. And that itself is a sort of innovation, isn't it? Absolutely. That's in some ways the biggest innovation of all, that the artist is not a craftsman, not, you know, not, they're not just an artisan hired to do a job, but they are, they're thinkers, they're visionaries, they're geniuses. And even in the early 15th century, the Medici were treating them as such and protecting certain artists. Donatello looks like he was able to get away with well, but with being gay, basically. I mean, he was he was protected by Cosimo de' Medici because he was an artist, because he was special. Whereas Fra Filippo Lippi, who was a friar, who'd ran off with a nun and eloped with a nun, Lucrezia Butti, and they had a child together, who also became a painter, Filippino Lippi. He was protected by Cosimo de' Medici <laughs> as well. So artists are different. That idea that we have today. One thing we still have in contemporary art is the idea that artists are special, different people. Well, there's a lovely that even to some other artists. I mean, there's a kind of wonderful moment you describe when you've got Michelangelo up painting the Sistine Chapel furiously with his beard full of paint and, you know, stove. And Raphael, you know, kind of plodding away on the School of <laughs> Athens at ground level, looking up and thinking, hmm, yeah, that guy's, that guy's really... Yeah. A bit livelier than me. You know? yeah, I mean, it's I was poor Raphael because I actually, I mean, Raphael is magnificent. He's just a perfect artist. You know, he's like the Mozart of, of painting. But, you know, people want something slightly different these days. <laughs> but, but yeah, Michelangelo, he, he, he actually portrayed Michelangelo in the School of Athens and he portrays him as a badly dressed isolated figure writing his poetry which is what Michelangelo was like he was intense and gloomy and very you know angry and introspective I'm not saying that they were all atheists Michelangelo was no no atheist he was deeply religious but his religion was something that he worked out for himself with he really was someone who mixed Christianity with with Plato's philosophy and he understood Plato, because he'd grown up in 15th century Florence at the court of Lorenzo de' Medici, who discovered him as a teenager, and that he met these great humanist 
intellect, uh, Michelangelo Poliziano. And so he understood Plato really well and, he, and his own poetry uses Plato. And he, but he uses it, Michelangelo uses Plato to justify his um, homosexuality which became more and more open through his life. Michelangelo lived a long time. As far as I can see, he was cagey about his sex, his sexuality, while his father was alive. But after his father died, who he loved and, you know, wanted to be respectable for his father, after his father died, he became bolder and he started writing love poetry to young men, especially Tommaso de Cavalieri, a young Roman nobleman. And he uses Plato's philosophy to justify what he's doing. He says, you know, oh, people, oh, base gossips say, you know, they say terrible things about my feelings for you, Tommaso, but it's pure, it's spiritual, it's and you know, my your beauty leads me to heaven, which is a true platonic description, you know, of 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 how the sun. There's a sort of mashup going on there, isn't there, between a sort of medieval, late medieval tradition of courtly love and conventional Christianity and this classical inheritance, and they all sort of come together, don't they, into this new yeah, thing? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I'd say, you know, the Renaissance is something new, I, I do believe it, but it also it uses old things and twists old things, and courtly love was the alternative culture of the Middle Ages. You know, beside Christianity in the Middle Ages, you do have this elite tradition of courtly love, which is a way to ritualise sexual relationships and romantic relationships, and also in a way that, mythically at least, gives women power in courtly love. It's the the knight, you know, the knight dedicates his his arms to a lady. It's, you know, King Arthur and Guinevere and Lancelot. It's Women definitely have agency in, in courtly love. And I think what happens in the Renaissance is that with all the lovely new pagan gods and Venus and Mars, that, that gets given a new new lease of life, new decorations. You know, the biggest jousts in 15th century Europe were held by the Medici, by Lorenzo de' Medici and his brother Giuliano, that Florent, these Florentine upstarts, actually, who are not, of course, true nobles, <laughs> they're bankers, but they stage these incredible chivalric jousts and Botticelli, helps to do the decorations money. for them. And, <laughs> and Angelo Poliziano writes poetry about them. And then Botticelli and Poliziano create the works of art, especially the Primavera, which combine kind of Arthurian romance with the eroticism of, of the classics to bring the pagan gods to life and to celebrate, um, celebrate love as this intense thing. So, I mean, love is at the heart of the Renaissance. I mean... It's um, I keep saying sex because I want to sound modern, but you know actually it's love, and everyone has to have a courtly lover. And the thing about court, but the so the Renaissance, as you say, it's a it's a mashup, and the Renaissance changes medieval courtly love into Platonic love and Platonic love poetry, uh, and Michelangelo says it's pioneer of that kind of poetry, but other people do it too, and it can justify any Platonic love. We still talk about Platonic love, but it was it was actually it was invented by this. By Marsilio Ficino, who was this, the great translator of Plato, that Marsilio Ficino was gay. So it's not a coincidence that he invents what he calls Platonic or Socratic love. And it all comes from Plato's Symposium, in which um, Alcibiades, who is kind of the boyfriend of Socrates, 
kind of fesses up and he says, well, actually, yes, I've sort of pursued Socrates. I've been in love with Socrates and Socrates has been happy to indulge that. But when we, when I finally got him into bed, first of all, I took him to the gym. It's like, <laughs> I took him to, as you did in ancient Athens, I took him to the gym and we did all these things. But eventually I did get him into bed for the night, but it was completely chaste. He never touched me, basically. And so Socrates is on the one hand, he definitely is attracted to male beauty because that's what love was in ancient Athens for elite men. But he, um, he's too, he's too, ultimately he's got his eyes on truth and philosophical truth. So that becomes this idea of, of love, which transmutes from the physical to the spiritual and leads you to spiritual truth. And that means that you can love anyone. <laughs> of course, this is a, even though this is a world that had, you know, you'd be burned at the stake for sodomy in the codes of platonic love. Actually, Michelangelo was able to be public about his adoration for Tommaso de Cavalieri. And Tommaso goes and sees the Pope and give, shows Michelangelo gave him beautiful drawings as well. Some of Michelangelo's greatest drawings, like um, the fall of Phaeton presents for Tommaso. And I think Tommaso actually went and showed this stuff to the Pope. Oh, look what Michelangelo has given me as a love gift. And the Pope says, oh, nice. You know, there's no, it's, it really is. So it really is at, at the height of the Renaissance is, is a very, very free world for, for the people, I guess, are an elite of artists and of connoisseurs and poets and humanists. But nevertheless, it's a, it's a European, a pan-European movement. But there comes along, and I have to leave the high realms of platonic love for something more practical, the Reformation strikes bang in the middle of this period. I mean, it seems to me that you at least half blame all that trouble on, you know, the over-ambitious renovations of St Peter's. Yeah, well, I probably could tell the story. <laughs> the thing, what I wanted to do with this book was to tell a narrative history of the Renaissance, to write a narrative history of the Renaissance in which you can link together all these artistic innovations and, and and everything that's happening in the world. And it is true, it's a nice coincidence, that the final straw for Martin Luther was being asked to pay indulgences to build for the rebuilding of St Peter's. Yeah. That's a kind of wonderful counterfactual. It's just, it made a nice narrative link. Uh, when, obviously, you know, this step too far was taken, Martin Luther did what we all know Martin Luther did. How did that... Does a post-Reformation world complicate the kind of north-south dialogue that you're talking about in this in this book? Yeah, I mean, I think the Renaissance itself, in in a deeper ways, helped bring about the Reformation by the new attitude towards looking at text properly, which is what Renaissance humanism is looking at text very closely. And if you look at the, you start doing that to the Bible, then you start to rethink things. So Luther comes out of the Renaissance, but yeah. Um, it's a moment of violence. If the Renaissance is the eruption of modernity or, or a kind of modernity breaking out of the past, the Reformation kind of gave that a violent quality, a really revolutionary, brutal quality, because Luther condemns idolatrous art. So, you know, suddenly all the fantastic images of the Virgin Mary and the rich altarpieces, which were as much part of Northern as Southern art, suddenly they're taboo. I mean, they're, dis they're to be destroyed. They are destroyed. A lot of them are destroyed. You know, anything idolatrous in a church. So you've got that. And in England, you have an absolutely weird state where they're, dis they're, they're going around, where Henry VIII brings in the Reformation from above as state policy. 
and they're going you know they're going about destroying the monasteries destroying chopping all the heads off the off the religious statues in the lady chapel in ely and things like that and while that's happening he's bringing in italian renaissance artists but mainly holbein holbein is his um clearly great artist so holbein is is painting the cheetah court at the exact moment when you know all the traditional religious art of england is being destroyed so that to me is a moment of incredible kind of um danger and radicalism in in, in the renaissance this is when Holborn painted his dead Christ at the time when the Reformation is coming to Basel. And what does that painting show? It seems to show that if you're getting rid of all, all the idolatry, if you're stripping Christianity bare of so many of the things that people loved about it and found consoling in it, then what's left? You know, that, that's what Holbein seems to be asking in that painting. And, and Holbein is an artist who dwells on death with... Um, quite depressive quality <laughs> he seems to be someone who who has moments of just utter melancholy i mean he did also prince of the the dance of death and of course his greatest work in england was the ambassadors which is in the and national Morphin gallery and, and that's it's like a renaissance it's a it's a summing up of the renaissance because there are these two guys standing there with a table between them on which there's lots of renaissance things globes you know the globes. That and I think you make a discovery. point that that painting, though its sitters and commissioners wouldn't have known it, is actually quoting another painting or other paintings that that are, you know he's he's doing something in the painting that his his sitters were quite unaware of. Yeah. Well, the thing is that the, the there's all these objects. All the, all the, there's mathematical instruments, Dura, scientific quite, instruments. Yes, quite Dura, yeah. There's a lute. And actually, what it echoes for Holbein is quite clearly echoing Albrecht Dürer's print, Melancholia One, that Dürer in Melancholia One portrays the genius, the artistic genius, the spirit of creation, perhaps, with a face in shadow, sitting there, looking completely paralysed, gloomy, lost in thought, surrounded by all these tools and things for, for creativity and mathematical instruments. That allegory of melancholy... Um, which had a huge impact in the Renaissance, which is a print, so that one of the things I say in stress is that the printing revolution is another of the <laughs> key things. And that, of course, is another northern thing, German thing, and German artists work very happily. They, so the Renaissance, it's not just all elite art, it's not just all oil paintings, it's not just all marble sculptures. It's um, also prints. So Dürer's print Melancholia then inspires Holbein to show these two young Frenchmen with objects around them that seem to be images of hope and of creation and of conquest, but are actually also images of melancholy. And then to underline it all, he uses distortion, anamorphic distortion, to paint a massive black and white skull searing across the painting. It's this blitz. When you first see it, you know, it's a blur like as if paint has been thrown in the middle of the picture. And, of course, it cuts through perspective. If the Renaissance is all about perspective, it's all about being able to see the world in perspective as a real space. And in The Ambassadors, Holbein interrupts that with something else, like another dimension, something cutting through from another dimension. And then you realise it's a skull, it's death, and death, you know. And actually, I think... As the Reformation then sparked the Counter-Reformation and religious war became 
increasingly the, the uh, reality of European life. I think that death makes its comeback. You could almost say that the Renaissance was a great defiance of death, all this love, all this sex, all this enjoyment of earthly delights. You could say it was a great kind of um, rebellion after the Black Death, you know, in the centuries after the Black Death, 1348, the Black Death, by 1400, the Renaissance is starting. You know, that it's kind of saying, well, you know, we're, we're going to live, we're going to live for the Cultural day. Cultural baby boom. <laughs> exactly. And we're going to live, we're going to live for this life. We're going to live on earth. And then in the 16th century, you know, as the Reformation takes hold and Europe becomes more tangled up in religious argument, like death makes its comeback. Kind of, <laughs> still of, the, they still get a plague all the time. Hippies anyway. get swept away by punk yeah, rock. They're yeah. always, every town and village is hit by plague periodically. Nothing has changed technologically. The man who believed everything could change was Leonardo da Vinci. The thing about Leonardo da Vinci, you know, as I say, I see him as an atheist. I also see him as a visionary of technology. We all love Leonardo's inventions. He tries to make flying machines and so on. But what's really, I think, behind all that is a philosophy of technology that he actually believes, understands that technology will remake human life and remake human nature I think he literally says he's it's human nature. There's a drawing that I use, one of his flying machine designs, where it's a man flying in a wooden contraption, and his face is strange and haunted, and and it's a science fiction image. But I think it's an image. You know, by flying, we will become something else. We'll become these new beings because we have become those new beings. But he was centuries ahead of his time. He's imagining the industrial revolution and imagining the technological revolution, you know, all those cliches about, oh, you bring back people from the past, what would they be like? You know, Leonardo is one person who would not have a problem if you brought him back today. He'd he'd be straight to the tech industry, obviously. Yeah. Um, you yeah. know, and he probably wouldn't have a problem with, with AI. He'd probably think that was great too. And, you know, because he, he's not really, he's not a humanist. He doesn't, he thinks humans could be made better by using machines and also by imitating animals, by flying like a bird. It doesn't happen. You know, Leonardo never, as far as we know, Leonardo never made any of his machines. And so, and the Renaissance, it ends up as a kind of Faustian tragedy, I think, where they have these dreams of modernity that can't actually be fulfilled. But you see something, something that I think is very kind of intriguing towards the end when you come on to Bruegel. You said you think that, that the point at which, and I think you say the phrase, the most interesting phase of the Renaissance is sort of when it almost gets re-exported to the north. And you said Bruegel's most interesting phase of these ideas and where they come to fruition, how the, the you know, southern classicism suddenly meets this sort of northern realism or story. And, and, and yet he's also the kind of last gasp. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's fascinating in some ways. It's actually one of the seeds of the whole book. Was I was in Rome looking at the, the Palatine palaces and the Colosseum. And I realised that Bruegel's Tower of Babel is actually inspired by that architecture, the grand, you know, the kind of grand crumbling architecture that you see in Rome. And so, so Bruegel is not like Bosch, who always stays up in the north. Bruegel did actually go to Italy. And I think that when he was in Italy, he got the idea for his painting, The Fall Landscape of the Fall of Icarus, which some people today don't think is by Bruegel, but it's it has to be by him or a copy of something by him. And he just turns the art of mythology. People, you know, Titian had 
did these wonderful sensual pictures of Greek myths. But what Bruegel does in the landscape with the fall of Icarus is he inverts Ovid's poem. The, the story is told by Ovid in the Metamorphoses, the great ancient Roman poem. And Ovid specifically uses the image of, he says, when it, you know, so Daedalus and Icarus are trying to escape on wings which are made of feathers and wax. Icarus flies too close to the sun and he falls into the sea. And Ovid says, oh, and you know, a ploughman would have looked up and a fisherman would have looked up and seen and they saw Icarus fall. So what Bruegel's painting does is that the ploughman doesn't look up. He carries on with his work. He's a, he's a, northern, he's a wretched northern peasant totally sunk in his lot, in his clogs, and he couldn't care less if a boy is falling from the sky. So there's a kind of blunt realism about it. Yeah. You know, which which in turn inspired Because quotation permissions are too expensive for Musée de Beaux Art by Auden. Yeah. Uh, well also <laughs> also my wife advised me that I quoted it far too often and I really shouldn't <laughs> quote it again. But obviously, uh yeah, I mean Auden or it's so Auden yeah, right uses that as an image of the way that terrible things happen and nobody notices and that's what life is like. So, but, so that's what but Bruegel is saying that, yeah, and he's actually twisting of its words in order to say that. So Bruegel does know about classics, but he also is a, a peasant artist. He paints peasant ways and, and the, the peasant point of view. Even there, he's painting the peasant point of view, you know, the ploughman who doesn't bother to look up. And his Tower of Babel, it's, he's pessimistic about human endeavour, totally pessimistic, even though he's also... He's the most complete artist of the 16th century who paints the 16th century world. He, he's No one painted as many galleons and ship, sailing ships as he did. You know, he did a painting in the port of Naples in which he shows all the different ships and he paints the goings-on at the docks in, in Antwerp as well, where he was from. So he captures the Renaissance world at its most ebullient at the time of, you know, we're talking now going in towards the Elizabethan age. Definitely the age of discovery, age of sail. But there's a deep bedrock of of peasant um, <laughs> gloom and pessimism in, in his art that is like the end of the Renaissance. And um, not, not just the last gasp, but he's actually rejecting it and saying, well, what's changed? And if you're a peasant and a country person, nothing's changed. We're still living in the Middle Ages. We're still living in a this bleak pre-industrial world <laughs> in which you know people's options are extremely limited he also depicts the the misery of the religious wars of war as such in his painting the massacre of the innocents which is in the royal collection in which he there's this squad of soldiers it's really terrifyingly real there's a village it's a northern european flemish village of his time and there's a squadron of soldiers on horseback coming down the road and starting to slaughter the children of the village and these are the Spanish. They're in Spanish armour. And this was the time when the Spanish were taking reprisals because the, the people of the Netherlands were starting to rise up against Spanish rule and they were Protestants and they didn't want to be real Catholics. So what's going on here is a, appears to be Spanish troops taking reprisals in an actual Flemish village. Very disturbing. So Bruegel really catches that moment when the renaissance is well it's, it's coming against the buffers of pre-industrial reality the early early modern yeah. history that is always there and also the realities of, of power and war which are well if, always if you, there there's another thing coming the council of trent more or less knocks it all on the head from the other end in italy it? yeah 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 so the council of trent 
the Catholic Church has to do something because of the Reformation. It's great, by the way, this, I really sort of, I managed to, there's a lot of history in this book that's told quite It's, it's very digestible. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyway, yeah, we have the Counter-Reformation, but yes, the they meet the Council of Trent to re redefine Catholicism and to rearm it. And one of the things they decide is they must not be nudes in churches. Religious art really must be much more serious and much more religious and you can't just have beautiful pictures in a church and and the guy who comes victim of this is the greatest of all christian artists <laughs> michelangelo it's michelangelo who runs who becomes the, the test case for this new um scrupulousness in the catholic I think church as you put it the, the vatican still hasn't cleaned off yeah. all of those emergency underpants yeah. so, so michelangelo is painting the last judgment which is you know everyone in the sistine chapel he painted the sistine ceiling when he was young and and when he painted the sistine ceiling no one asked why he covered it with the ignudi there are loads of male nudes on the sistine ceiling just disporting themselves and enjoying being up there and not not really with any clear theological <laughs> or philosophical explanation, except that Michelangelo really liked painting them. But nobody said anything at the time, because that was the high renaissance, this moment when really, you know, there is a cynicism in the church. And so anyway, he comes back to paint the last judgment on the altar wall. And to my mind, it's like his greatest painting. And actually, I think it's my favourite painting in the world, the last judgment because it's, yeah, it's a painting that's abstract and figurative at the same time. Michelangelo's always competing. By this stage, he's competing with Titian. Michelangelo and Titian are like the last two Renaissance giants standing. They both lived a long time, both lived through the 16th century. Michelangelo's colours in The Last Judgment, sumptuous deep blue in which bodies are falling and rising, which is an image he takes from Plato, the idea of fall, the falling, the rising soul. But also it, he really put it's his own Christianity and his own heretical Christianity, really, where there's men kissing up in heaven. There are men kissing and embracing, not in hell, in heaven, in the heights of heaven, um, because they're pure souls, so they can do what they like. And so there are male lovers. And people were onto him, as it were, by this stage. Everyone knew that he was gay. He'd basically come out. He'd written these poems to Tommaso, which were widely circulated. And so counter-reformation critics, zealots and hypocrites absolutely leap on him and they start saying well this is just this is more suit this painting is more suitable for a, a a bathhouse than for the pope's chapel bathhouses being associated with gay sex then as you know and 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 one of his critics is like unbelievably hypocritical a guy called pietro aratino which shows you how how rapidly everything's can change and it is a bit it's a bit culture worry aratino was a pornographer he wrote poems called Emodi, the positions which to go with um, a set of drawings by Giulio Romano of the positions. So it's a lover's guide. And he was, I mean, and he also wrote a dialogue between prostitutes, which, in which, which is quite long, in which a very explicit book in which basically the prostitutes discuss how being a prostitute is a better life than being married. It's better than marriage. And also better than being a nun, and nun, and end that nuns and monks are just totally corrupt anyway. So anyway, Aretino is not—he's <laughs> not that pure, put it this way. And yet he—he he says, "Oh well, at least you know, I my, you know, my horse dialogue was decent compared to what you've done in the Sistine Chapel. I I did things uh, appropriately, whereas you've actually put obscenity and." in the Pope's chapel, which is disgusting. So Michelangelo has to endure all this. They can't actually 
he's just, they just say these things. They can't do anything about it because Michelangelo is like a god. And then he creates the Dome of St. Peter's. But as soon as he died, they called in a, a painter to paint draperies on the nudes in the, in the Last Judgment, especially the male nudes and especially their buttocks. It was very pointed, what they were saying. It was so... And, that's, and a lot oh, of them are still, still there. there. Extraordinary. Yeah. Well, it was fun while it lasted. <laughs> it was fun while it lasted, exactly. <laughs> Three Delights is out now, Jonathan Jones. Thank you very much. Cheers, thank you. Thanks very much.